Welcome to Northridge Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. For more information, visit us online at northridgethomaston.com. Now prepare your heart as we dive into God's Word. But as a victor, we thank you that there's no weapon formed against us that will prosper. We thank you today that as we join together under the banner of hope, that you have offered us through the cross, through the death, the resurrection. God, today we stand in that truth. We declare it over our lives, over our families, over our community, and over our country. God, may you be glorified. May you be a truth and make every man a liar. In Jesus' mighty name we pray and all of God's people said, amen. Y'all give the Lord a big hand today. Come on, y'all may be seated. Couple of things real quick I did not mention in the first service, but I want to lay before you very quickly just to kind of give you some uh, encouragement, some things that are going on. Um, we uh, were able to finish, for the most part, our uh, pavilion down at the lake. So praise the Lord, men. I think you'll see that tonight. Don't forget about lift. Uh, also, uh, not lift. It's not lift. That's the women's thing, right? Y'all are just like, amen, brother. Preach it. Seriously? Man to man, right? You knew what I was saying. And uh, also, um, Kayla and Michael Barnes, y'all wave your hand at us. Uh, these are our family. These are our folks, and they're believing God for a child and have for quite some time and just praying now through adoption. And uh, we've gone through that with several folks in our church family. And uh, so if you want to support that, please see Michael and Kayla right after service. They're, uh, they have a, a, a rifle that they're um, doing a, a raffle on, and they would love to help for that to help them towards that. 100% of that money goes to that adoption. So y'all please go and see them right after. And then lastly, real quick, uh, how many of y'all have children that are in our children's ministry right now? Wave your hand. Right next door. Some of y'all are like, oh yeah, I forgot. They're over there, yeah. So we are um, really close to kicking off the building of our new building. And so we're, we're getting real, real close to that. Met with architect last week, talked to the builder. So we'll be reporting that very, very soon, but that's gonna be amazing. And I cannot wait for that to happen. So y'all continue to pray about that. Let's give Jesus another round of applause for everything that's going on, amen? Hey, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I remember this song from an early age. I wanna see if you can help me uh, sing it. Uh, it says, Jesus loves me, this I know. So as an early young believer, if you will, raised in church, we are taught that we can stand on this book and that this book is truth. And here's the thing, if it's not absolute truth and every bit of it is true, then all of it can be challenged. You can't stand on for whosoever call upon the name of the Lord can be saved without standing on the things that he kind of commands of us. And he tells us to do his mandates in scripture, like taking care of the widows and the orphans in their time of trouble. It tells us how to tame our tongue. It talks to us about generosity. In Ephesians 5 and 25, it tells us how to husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It tells wives, submit to your own husband as unto the Lord, for the husband is at the head of the home as Christ the head of the church. And, and, and if we believe all of that, and we stand on it, then it becomes truth and we live it out. And the Bible says, and the truth will set you free. Here's the problem that I think that many of us have today is most of us, when we talk about promises in the scripture, most of us can't turn to it and tell you where it is. And that's a little frightening in and of itself, which literally means that you're merely regurgitating what you've heard someone else say. In fact, I think there's a question that should be begged among all of us as believers. How do you know that you can trust your Bible. I think there's two 
particular presuppositions that we would bring to the table in that argument. The first, of course, is, well, I believe and trust my Bible because it was the way that I was raised. That's flawed from the get-go because you could have been raised the wrong way. See, the Buddha says, I was raised that way. Why is his not truth? The Jehovah's Witness was raised that way. Why was it not truth? Mormon and so forth and so on. Orthodox Catholicism. And we could go down the gamut. So that one's flawed. The second one, and what I consider to be the more prevalent of the justifications of how we know we can trust our Bible, is that I tried it and it worked for me. The logic behind that, however, has a very large hole in it. Maybe I can explain it in this story. There was a young boy who was born in Omaha, Nebraska. As a young boy, his father was murdered in the streets. He was a criminal. His mother, because of that act, was deemed certifiably insane and committed to a life of institution. He was passed along, as were his 10 siblings, from one foster home to the other. Until finally his sister was emancipated and she decided to take this little boy and I think two or three of the other siblings and move to Massachusetts to begin a new life for themselves. Having been recently emancipated, however, she was working all of the time, which left the siblings to fend for themselves once again. This little boy took to crime, petty crime around the streets, and he grew older, and that turned into more organized crime. He later became a pimp. He was a gambler. He would run numbers, and on and on and on, until finally he was arrested. When he was put in prison, his cellmate came to him and said, look, I, I'm no different than you, but when I came here, I found the Messiah. I bent a knee to the Messiah, and that's the only way you're going to make it in this institution. His reply is, I'll bend a knee to no one. I've lived in the streets. I'm about to no one. Maybe several weeks, months, I don't know exact time that went by from that moment. He woke up one morning and he couldn't wait to tell his cellmate. He said, last night I was visited in my cell by the Messiah and I bent a knee and I placed my trust in him. He actually changed so much so that the prison uh, system began to trust him. He became somewhat of a trustee within the walls of the prison, later even getting out on parole earlier than his time would have been to be released. As he gets out in the streets, he becomes a great orator. He begins to talk about his troubled youth, and he begins to change other lives, and so much so that he later became a minister and planted over 100 houses of worship. His name, Malcolm X. His religion, the Nation of Islam. His Messiah, the Honorable Muhammad. But he tried it, and it worked for him. You see, if, if that's where we stand, then we're no different than Malcolm X. We're no different. In fact, Malcolm X later in life ended up realizing that his Messiah was not the true Messiah, re renounced it, and was assassinated by the nation of Islam. As we, as we unpack these two answers, then maybe that's one of yours. So I want to give you a better one. Here before me, we have a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses who report supernatural events 
in direct fulfillment to specific prophecies who claim that their writings are divine rather than human in nature. That's how we can know. And you say, Mark, that's an amazing, amazing definition. Well, I want to kind of declare before you today, it's not my own. In fact, I, I stole it from the apostle Peter. It's found in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, as I read this, if I may. Peter, the great apostle, wrote these words. For we did not follow cunning devised fables when we made known to you the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father in honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on that holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but from holy men as they spoke and as they were carried around or moved by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you today. We thank you for your word that you hold above your own name. We give you all of our trust. Reveal it to us today in Jesus' name. And everyone said amen. It's a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses who wrote them in times of other eyewitnesses who reported supernatural events that actually happened in direct relationship to specific prophecies who claim that these writings are divine rather than human in origin. So I wanna break that down for us and unpack it. Number one, it's a collection of historical documents. When we look at this, we look at it as a book, but in fact, it's not a book at all. It's 66 books written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. And it was written by 40 different authors over a period of time of 1,500 years, so most of which never, ever met one another, yet it is absolutely and 100% confirmed, never cross-referenced, rebuked, but is 100% corroborated by each of the writers. Now, I would submit to you that there's, we could even do that in this room. If we were to pick a topic and say, hey, let's 40 people in this room right now in real time based on the influences that we have that don't, no doubt are similar, let's write on any given topic, let's come back together and see if our truths are 100% corroborating. And it wouldn't happen. We go one step further and we realize that the Bible itself is filled with names and dates in history, and the fact there's over 23,000 archaeological digs that were conducted in conjunction with these writings, and not one finding, not one single finding refutes this book. But watch this 100% of the 23,000 archaeological digs merely confirms this word for word. In fact, the Gospel of Luke, and I, I quote him because I think Luke is a very unique character. You say, Mark, you're using circular reason. You're quoting the Bible to prove the Bible. I'm, I'm absolutely not. First of all, it's not my job to prove Scripture. I've said this before, but maybe you're here. I'll say it again. Charles Hadding Spurgeon, a great preacher of, of our day, said it this way. Truth doesn't need defended. It's like a lion. You just turn it loose and it'll defend itself. 
I'm not, I'm not here today to prove the scriptures. I'm here merely to say why I trust them. And when we look at Luke, Luke was the guy who was unconventionally an apostle because he wasn't a disciple. In fact, he would have been considered by the Jewish people of the day a dog. Why? Because he was a Gentile. But something unique about him, he was also a doctor, a physician, and a historian. Listen to what he writes in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. He's an eyewitness, and he's speaking to other eyewitnesses. He says, they used eyewitness reports that have been circulating among us from the early disciples by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Listen to what he says. I love this. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. Now, we don't know who Theophilus is, and that's neither here nor there. We know that he's a very important person, and Luke is writing, and he's explaining to him that I'm passing this along to you. Don't get hung up on that. So you can be certain that the truth of everything you were taught. You see, Luke, Dr. Luke, the physician, the historian, would have had a very strong mantra, a very strong conviction in life. You know what it would have been? It would have been precision and truth. That's why when you read the Gospel of Luke, you find details and dates and places and names, things that you don't necessarily find in the other. Why? Because even his writings, narratively, have a lot of expressive detail in them that the other Gospels do not. We look into, of course, the book of Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, his protege, for example, and he uses a real name and a real career. He calls a guy named Alexander the coppersmith. And he says, I want to let you know, Timothy, that this guy has caused me trouble, that he has hated me. He is this, whatever you would want to use today in modern terms. He, he's creating problems for me in the ministry. He named him by name. He named him by career. So what that would have been likened to is we could have said, hey, the guy down here on West Main Street, you know, the little corner so-and-so, that guy's been creating a difficult time for me at Northridge Church. That would have been corroborated by everyone listening because they had known the place, they had known the name, and who knows what would happen after social media. Somebody say, help us, Lord. But then you read in the book of Acts chapter nine when this man named Saul of Tarsus, a murderer, I mean, he's one of the greatest litmus tests for the gospel. Because he wasn't a disciple. He was shown the person of Jesus Christ on Acts chapter nine in the road to Damascus when he was going there to kill more Christians. If there's ever a, a poster child for atheism and for the Roman government and any other thing aside from Christianity, which was brand new as he was a contemporary of Jesus, Yet on this encounter, he comes up blind and literally hits the ground running and goes back and he's ready to preach the gospel day one. So much so that the scriptures say they were terrified of this man when he walked into a community of believers. He was the one going to preach. He ended up being writer of nearly two-thirds of the New Testament. He became the greatest mission, uh, church planter, gospel writer, if you will. And here's what he said. He says, I was even told, Peter was even told, he writes this, and he said, Peter was even told to go down to Simon the Tanner, Tanner's house. He names the place. He names the, the career that he had. You gotta understand something. When we talk about historical accuracy, you have to understand that the Romans were notorious for keeping strong details of history. The Jews were very good at it, but the Romans were meticulous about it, and even they corroborate these writings. Not only the historical documents that are reliable, listen, it was written by eyewitnesses. 
Most of you who know me know that I am a outdoor survival buff, if you will. I love survival stories. I love Alaska stories. I love, I mean, people catching gators, you know, good TV, whatever, whatever it may be. My wife said, is this bad when you can watch English programs and these people are so backwards, they have to be closed captioned so people can understand what they're saying. I love it. Second thing I like probably would be um, kind of crime drama type stuff. I, I don't mean the act of it. I, I don't mean that. I don't mean stuff like that. But I mean things where it's just kind of trying to decide who did it, right? And, and one thing I have found to be very uh, indicative of, of a quick movement in the crime drama is that when you have a witness, when you have an eyewitness, it changes everything. I mean, we build our entire judicial system around that. In fact, so much so that we don't even have to have witnesses to convict people of capital crime. All we have to do is make sure we don't let the defense create, create a what? A reasonable doubt. But let's just be very honest. Even for a person who goes into the prison system on death row, for someone later to come up as an eyewitness to corroborate their alibi, guess what? It's over. They're, they're set free. No question. So when we, when we see this, it was written by eyewitnesses. It really kind of gives you kind of a case-closed mentality. Because again, this is not a book. This is a collection of historical documents. So when John writes about the gospel, when, when, when Mark, when Luke, and so forth, when they write, when Matthew writes about it, Matthew was a tax collector. He was hated by Christians. I mean, these are the most uncommon people. I mean, fishermen, for goodness sakes. How many of you, you don't even know a fisherman that doesn't tell a small lie. Come on, somebody. But God uses these unconventional people, and I'll tell you why. Here's why I believe that. Because I think one of the greatest stories that becomes the litmus test for the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do you mean the gospel? The good news, right? The death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. You see, because something happened with these men called disciples who walked with Jesus. They saw the healing of the leper. They saw, saw the healing of the withered hand. They saw the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, the, the fish, all the stuff that happened, the, the raising of, of, a, of a girl, Jairus's daughter from the dead. They saw all of these things, yet it was ambiguous at best for them because once they came to the point of the cross, they scattered their lives. They were afraid. They didn't want to die. So what'd they do? They ran and hid. Matter of fact, one of them, Peter, he ended up becoming a guy who would deny and curse Jesus. I don't even know him. Another guy went even further than that and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver. Judas Iscariot betrayed him. The only one that was with him during that time was John. And John declared himself, I'm the, I'm the one that Jesus loves. I thought that was pretty cool. But watch this, don't miss this. And this is corroborated in both Jewish and Roman history. Say, so can you prove that? I can. A guy named Clavius, uh, I'm sorry, Flavius Josephus, who by the way was what was called a Romano Jewish historian. I mean, he's, he was approved as a half citizen of Rome that his historical writings were corroborated by Rome and he was one that could go forth on Rome's behalf. He actually uh, worked for a guy named Titus. You may know that name. He's the one that destroyed the, uh, the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. Josephus worked for him. And Josephus even wrote, there was a guy named Pontius Pilate. There was a guy who said, I washed my hands of this man's innocent blood, whose name was Jesus, as known as the Christ, the Nazarene, the man from Galilee. 
There was a man named Herod who spoke with him as well. He corroborates all this to so much so he says, even when he walked down the Via Della Rosa, this is external. He's an atheist. He's a non-Christian. He's a Romano-Jewish historian. And he says, this guy was beaten beyond recognition so much that his own mother didn't know him. And he physically died. And we know so because when they pierced his side in the pericardium of the heart, water came forth. The pleurisy, everything that had happened in his heart proved his death. They didn't break his legs because he was dead. And they took him and buried him. And three days later, he was seen again. Now, why do I tell you that? Because even if you don't believe that, you know what you have to believe? Because this is what he also records. That those men that I told you had ran and high because they were afraid of dying, something catastrophic happened in their life, so much so that after they gathered in the upper room, they were so compelled to go out and live that truth that every single one of those men who were terrified of dying were now willing to not only die, but live for their faith and die a martyr's death. What was it that would cause these guys to have such a turnaround historically? I'm not even talking about the Bible. The Bible doesn't record record their martyrdom. Josephus does. And I'm talking flayed alive. I'm talking tarred, thrown off of the temple mount, beaten, stoned, beheaded. Peter was even, according to Josephus, came out, the guy who denied him came out and was going to be crucified, quote unquote, like his savior, and so did not feel honored to be crucified in such a manner that he was crucified upside down. Why? Because they were eyewitnesses of his glory. They saw him. Thirdly, during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, Paul, the same guy I was telling you about, wrote it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he said. Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preached to you before you welcome me. Stand firm in it. It is good news that saves you. And if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place, I pass it on to you was the most important and what was the most important thing and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried, and watch this, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. Now watch this. He was seen by Peter, then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, basically when he's writing this letter, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, his half-brother, and later by all the apostles in the upper room, the 120. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I too saw him, Acts chapter 9, for I am the least of the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted the church. This is huge. Say, Mark, that's in the Bible. No, that's in a letter that he wrote to a church stating, stand on this, it's truth. I know it because I risked my life and I killed others, but now I'm telling you it's true because I too saw him in the life of other eyewitnesses. Not only that, he writes this to the church at Corinth and he said, oh, by the way, as I'm writing this, there's probably three to 500 other people that are living right now as I tell you this. Yet not one of them was willing to step up and refute it. Not one. Many of you today may take that eyewitness thing and say, well, that's the problem. 
The problem with the scripture, Mark, is it's been tainted. The book that we have before us today was not the book that was written then. And I think that's an okay argument. But I pray that it's not flawed based on the translation uh, perspective. Because someone that's reading, for example, the NIV or the New Living Translation today would say, I think it could be flawed. Because in it, it has uh, conversations about slaves and slave owners. And surely a good God would not endorse it. I want you to hear me today. He never endorsed it. He simply said that it existed. And because it exists, here's how you must conduct yourself even as a slave. Because it was the culture. Somebody might argue today would say it was just a, it was a man's book written by men and it doesn't take into account women's liberation. And you'd be right, it does not because culture doesn't deem truth, truth is truth. However, they would pull out something from the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes, the quote unquote wisest man to ever live, Solomon, who had what, five or 600 concubines? Wives, surely God doesn't endorse that and you'd be right again. He doesn't endorse it. In fact, the fact that he was married and had all these concubines was the very reason for his demise. Furthermore, you may look at the NLT and you say, well, really the NLT is, 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 is kind of like us telling a story. Mark, if I tell a story over here and by the time it gets over here, it's gonna be completely false. Well, again, that's not how we get translations so you would be wrong in determining how we get them. Here's, what's, here's what I mean. The NLT doesn't go back, for example, to the New American Standard Version of translation and translate from there. The New American Standard Version doesn't go back to the New King James Version and translate from there. The New King James does not go to the King James 1611, and the 1611 doesn't go to the 1558 Geneva Bible, the first English translation in modern history. We go back to the original copies of manuscripts. And before you throw that one out the window, let me throw this at you. You can go back also to the original Greek, Syriac, Coptic, Latin, Hebrew, Aramaic. But before you jump on the manuscript issue, let me offer you this. We have over 6,000 copies of manuscripts from the New Testament alone. New Testament only, 27 books. If you factor in the Old Testament, which by the way, no one really refutes, even the Quran uh, corroborates the Old Testament. They don't have a problem with the Old Testament. They have a problem with Isaiah. They quote Isaiah more than any other writer. You know who they have a problem with? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that was slain before the framing of the world. That's the problem. That's the tipping point for all of them. We have 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone. And with the Old Testament, we have over 20,000. In fact, some were found even in the last century as the Dead Sea Scrolls. I have personally stood in Israel and looked at actual pieces of manuscripts from the book of Isaiah. We have the entire book of Isaiah that was dated back into that original time. You say, Mark, why does that matter? Let me tell you why that matters. Compare that to Julius Caesar, the Gallic Wars. Everything we know about Julius Caesar that we believe and take at face value, we only have less than 12 copies existing. Or what about Aristotle's poetics? Everything we know about poetic rhythm, poetic theory, and literary theory, everything we know about that from Aristotle, we have less than 10 copies. Or what about Socrates, who is the father of modern Western philosophy? And we have zero copies of his writings. Everything we know today about Socrates was written by Plato in 
simple retrospect and merely conjecture about what he felt Socrates said or meant. Zero copies, 6,000 copies of the New Testament. Let's go one step further. But Mark, do you have original autographs? No, there's a problem with time. Time would absolutely defect the original papyrus writings. But that's why the copies of copies of copies of copies were incredibly important. And understand before you start thinking again, the whole, I'll tell you and you tell him, let me, let me help you understand something. The scribes who would have copied these did so as a way of life. But let me go one step further. We don't have autographs, but here's what we do have. The copies of manuscripts, the most recent findings of the New Testament, the the oldest findings were in 120 AD, just two and a half decades after they were originally written. We have them. Copy manuscript. Julius Caesar's writings, guess how old they were. The the newest writings we have are 1,000 years after Julius Caesar died. What about Aristotle, 1,400 years, his poetics after he died, 25 years for the New Testament scripture? Or what about this one? Homer's the Iliad. Everything we know about the Greek and Trojan War, you've read it in school, you believed it, no one questions it. Guess what? The soonest writings we have of Homer's Iliad is 2,000 years after his death. The New Testament, 25 years. In fact, I I love this part because I I love commentary. I love to read books. And one of the things that man has been doing since the beginning of the writings is they've been commenting on what they think the scripture means. Now, I will offer you this. That can be dangerous because it really doesn't matter what you think it means. What matters is what he said. So commentators can be good or bad. We gotta be careful. I believe the Holy Spirit can reveal truth to you in the scripture as you go. Now, here's my point. We have commentaries from as soon as uh, 80 AD, right after the destruction of Rome by Titus in 70 AD, commentators were writing. So you got about a 30 to 50 year block of time, maybe 100 years of commentators, watch this, that were writing on the scripture, meaning they'd write the verse and then they'd comment. They'd write the verse and then they'd comment. And watch this, if you take the commentators only and put them together from around 70 AD to about 120 AD, you watch this, you have the entirety of the New Testament scripture at about 95% less only 11 verses, word for word. Not only was it in the life of eyewitnesses and during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses, they also report supernatural events. How many times have you heard this? Well, God told me to do so-and-so. How many of y'all heard that? Some of y'all that aren't raising your hand, you're the one that said God told you to do this, right? Hey, I believe with all of my heart that God speaks to us today through the Holy Spirit, through his word. But when we're talking about new revelation, we're talking about words that were never exchanged in the word of God. We see a supernatural act when Jesus comes down into the Jordan River and is baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And Paul said he heard it, Peter said he heard it, Josephus and many others recorded it, that they heard the audible voice of God from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's a miracle. It's supernatural. In fact, as we go on to look at the Roman crucifixion, here's what's interesting. That is the only miracle that is recorded across all annals of history, both Rome, Jewish, 
all the way into Africa, European, Asian. It's recorded that there was a man that claimed to be, or that's what they say, claimed to be the prophet, the Messiah, that was killed between two thieves. And even from the cross, external biblical revelation tells us and corroborates that he said seven things from the cross. Things like, forgive them for they know not what they do. Or into the, my, my father's hands I commend my spirit. It is finished, those kind of things. And we could go through the many, many supernatural events, but let me, for a second time, it was done in fulfillment, number five, in conjunction with specific prophecies. This one really gets me. When you talk about messianic prophecies that were written a thousand years before Jesus Christ walked on the earth and he fulfills them, the likelihood or probability of that is astronomical. I'll give you just one. Psalm 22 was written 1,000 years before Jesus' birth by David, King David. And he wrote a song, don't miss this, because it wasn't called Psalm 22 when it was written. That wasn't even, the numbers and verses and stuff, stuff were not put in there until the Geneva Bible in 1558 and the King James Bible in 1611. So it didn't have that. It's just called a name. And, and it's words that Jesus spoke from the cross. The name of the song written by King David 1,000 years before Jesus' birth is Eli, Eli, Laba, Sabachthani. You know what that means? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me read it to you. Listen to the words of the psalmist in this messianic prophecy. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist writes, why are you so far from helping me? And the words seem like of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear in the night season, and I'm not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers entrusted you. They trusted, and you delivered them. They cried to you, and you were delivered, and they were delivered. They trusted you, and were not ashamed. But I am a worm, the psalmist said, and I'm no man, a reproach of men, despised of people. Jesus said that in conjunction with Isaiah chapter 53, despised of men, rejected among men. All those who see me ridicule me. You remember around the cross, all the ridicule that he got, if you be the Christ and so forth and so on. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted the Lord, yet him he cannot rescue. Let him deliver him since his delights in him. Remember the thief on the cross said, if you be the Christ, the son of God to save yourself and us also, fulfillment in that. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while I was in my mother's breast. I cast upon you from birth. I was cast upon you from birth my mother's womb you have been my god since that moment be not far from me for trouble is near still talking about the psalmist for there is none who help but many bulls have surrounded me strong bulls of bashan have encircled me they gape at me with their mouths like raging and roaring lion i poured out like water when his side was struck by the by the uh, spear of the soldier and water came out of his pericardium it was that water flush, rushing forth that was fulfilled in this scripture. He says, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength has dried up like a posture and my tongue clings to my jaws. He said from the cross, I thirst. 
as a fulfillment of Psalm 22. Watch this. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. Who were the dogs? Jews called the Roman soldiers and the Gentiles dogs. And they surrounded him around the cross. Listen to this. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. Listen to this. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all of my bones, meaning they weren't out of place. Remember when they went to break his legs in fulfillment of scripture that not one bone would be broken? It's actually declared here in this messianic psalm. They took and they stare at me. They divide garments among them. For all my clothing, they cast lots. Remember they cast lots at the feet of the cross as, as a way of mockery for his purple robe. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, and the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me, and I would declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. Now, why is that important as he writes this song with all of these things, like he pierced my hands and my feet and my clothing, the lots were cast from it? I'll tell you why. Because the guy that wrote it, wrote it a thousand years before Jesus was born. And watch this, 650 or so years before the Romans even discovered the crucifixion. And yet he declares it as a messianic psalm directly related to what Jesus would do. As the band comes and they claim that their writings, they claim that their writings were divine rather than human in origin. It's funny, if you take the Bible and you were to divide it by chapters to the very center, you would come to Psalm chapter 118. Psalm chapter 119 directly after the center is the longest chapter in the entire word of God. If you go to chapter 117, the one right before it, it's the shortest chapter in the entire word of God. If you count the chapters before chapter 118 of Psalm all the way to the beginning, you, you will count 594 chapters. If you count all the chapters after Psalm 118, you will count 594 chapters. You add them together, you will come up with 1,118. And if you go to the exact dead center of scripture by chapters and verse, you'll come to Psalm chapter 118 and verse eight, which reads, it is better to trust the Lord than to put confidence in man. It's trustworthy because this prophecy is an indication of divine authorship. And I wanna leave you with this. I'll call it the science of mathematical probability. Jesus fulfilled 300 plus prophecies, specific prophecies. And, and when we consider probability, for example, if I were to take a, a, a hat and take 10 tickets and put only on one a marking and put it into that hat and I were to pass it to a man that was blindfolded and say, just draw one out. The probability mathematically of him pulling out the one that I marked up is one in 10. If you take just Micah chapter five and verse two alone, where this prophet, this minor prophet who wrote nearly a thousand years before Jesus's birth, that he would come and be born in Bethlehem among other things. The likelihood of that happening is one in 300,000. And you say, why is that important? I'll tell you why. Because that's not where Jesus should have been born. He wasn't, that's not where his family was from. He was in the area of Galilee in a little town called Nazareth. 
But because the Roman government was seeking to tax people, they had to go back to their birthright home. So of course, Joseph being likened and connected to the house of bread or Bethlehem, this is even more important because Jesus was born in the house of bread and he later declared, I'm the bread of life. One in 300,000. But if we were to take eight of the 300 plus prophecies specifically spoken and say the likelihood, the mathematical probability of one man fulfilling only eight of the 300 plus prophecies. It would be one in 10 to the 17th power. It's a lot of zeros. It's in the trillions. One in the trillions. And so you remember the hat, the ticket thing? Let me, let me reveal this to you and what this would look like. The likelihood. If you were to take silver dollars and you were to take them to the state of Texas and you were to lie them on the ground and stack them two feet deep and take that same man and blindfold him and set him on the eastern corner of Texas and tell him to start walking and at any given point that he decides to reach down, move around all those silver dollars on the entire state of Texas and pick up one, the likelihood of him picking up the one coin that was marked would be the same as one man fulfilling merely eight of the 300 prophecies. Let me go one step further. A great mathematician decided to go to a point to where you, you can't even Google this. But he said that If you take 45 of the 300 prophecies, remember he fulfilled 300 plus, but the likelihood of one man fulfilling 45 of those would be one in 10 to the 157th power, a number that doesn't even exist. But he said it would be real close to this. For people who play the lottery, they're engaging in a one in 290 million, I mean, 292 billion chances that they could win for the Powerball. 292 billion. For one man to fulfill 45 of the 300 prophecies, Jesus did 300, but just 45, would be likened to one person, the same person, and a one in 292 billion chances to win the lottery. 17 trillion times in a row. And that's only 45. And if I, as I take that in, I think I could just say a word. It's impossible. It's impossible. But then there's a book that transcends possibilities into the supernatural. And it's one I can stand on. It's one that I can read and it says, if I confess my sin and I believe in my heart and I call on the name of Jesus, I can be saved. 
It's one that tells me that he is the healer of my soul. He's the one that tells me he's the author and the finisher of my faith. He's the one that said I'm justified by faith. He's the one that said my sin is cast as far as the east is from the west. He's the one that told me how to be a daddy. He's the one that told me how to look away from strange women. He's the one that told me how to conduct myself in the church house and at home and in school and in the workplace and how to be generous and how to conduct my finances and how to worship and how not to talk and everything else and it's supernatural and it's here. And guess what? If I can't stand on that, I might as well not stand on anything and just fall for whatever the world throws at me. But as for me in my house, I tried it and it worked. It worked for me. And though that's not convincing to the atheist, what is convincing is that today I stand before you with a book that has never been refuted. Yet men are willing to die for it. And others still are willing to simply live for it. I ask you to bow your heads all over the room. I don't know what you brought in here today, but I want you to know that I stand on the authority of God's word today that it is absolute. It is inerrant. It is infallible. The word of God that I hold before me today is not concerned with cultural changes, political correctness. It's not relative truth, it's absolute truth. And it's that truth that will set you free. How many of you can say, Mark, I, I may not understand it all, but one thing I am certain of, I'm a child of the most high God. I have Jesus in my heart. Would you lift your hands all over the room? I know that I know that I'm saved, Mark. I know it. Wow. Hey, and you know what? There's some hands that couldn't go up. So I say to you today, what are you waiting for? There's a scripture that tells us that today is the day of salvation. Just put your faith in him. Romans 3.23 tells us we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Me, you, Billy Graham, Everybody. There was only one that was sinless and his name was Jesus. He tells us in Romans 5, 8 that we don't have to wait till we get our life together and clean up our act. He says that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. He tells us in 6.23 of Romans, he says the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. Don't make any qualms about it. He said, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ. It's a gift. How do, you, how do you get a gift? You receive it. The Bible says to as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become a son or a daughter of God. So Mark, how do I do it? I'm so glad you asked because the scripture's so clear. If thou believe in their heart, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Whosoever, he says in 1013, shall call upon the name of the Lord. You can be saved. So I want to lead you in that truth. I want to lead you in a prayer of faith. I'm just going to believe that today. Pray with me from your heart to God. Father in heaven, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died for me. And on the third day, I believe you rose again. Defeating death, hell and the grave on my behalf. Jesus, will you save me? I invite you to be the Lord over all of my life. And I want you to help me live for you until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray. Every head bowed and with every eye closed, if you pray that prayer today in faith,
The Bible says you've been born again. You've been adopted by the Father. Your sins are cast in the sea of forgetfulness. There's nothing in the world, nor no principality, no dark spirit, wickedness in high places, death or life, things past, present or future, that can separate you from that love. You are sealed to the day of redemption. So if you prayed today and you invited Jesus in your heart without any personal debate, lift your hand right now and say, Mark, I prayed and I invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life. God bless you, man. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? God bless you. Praise God. Anyone else? I prayed and I invited Jesus into my heart. Just throw it up real quick. There's a day that we each will stand before our maker. And he says, listen to me. You have no excuse. The truth's been given. God's not some bad God that's sending some people to hell and awarding some to go to heaven. Listen, you go to hell because you choose to reject the love of Jesus Christ and the finished work of the cross. It wasn't created for you. So your choice is true today. Your election is sure. Thank you for joining us today at Northridge Church. We hope today's message inspired you in your walk with God. We hope you take your next step by connecting with us online at northridgethomaston.com.